Hello, everyone, and welcome to Topics in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and today we're talking about temptation, where it comes from, and what power over it, if any, that we have. There might be some surprises ahead, so let's keep listening close. So it is becoming a little strange to try to do the intro since I'm starting to record these about twice a week. So we're going to pretty quickly get ahead of kind of where I'm actually at when I'm recording this. And so we'll see how that goes, whether I end up recording the intro separately the week of and attaching it to the beginning, or if we just end up kind of launching straight into the topic, which we're going to kind of do today. So this one, uh, if you recall, I mentioned last week's episode that reading the verse around this idea of no weapon formed or forged against us will prosper. There's a very curious verse where God says in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 16 and 17, See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame, and forges a weapon fit for its work. It is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. And depending on the faith background you came out of, that may seem completely normal. (laughs) For others of you, that may seem completely opposed to what you've learned about the nature of God. And certainly this can be one of those places where to try to understand it, we end up separating the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. We've talked about that in earlier episodes way, way back. And that was one of the the larger ideas behind doing Old Testament in faith, even though it became just Genesis in faith, was to look at God on both sides of history, on the Old Testament and the New Testament side, and see that It is actually the same God at all times. So you can't say that I prefer the God of the New Testament because it's the same one. And you have to, we have to find some way to understand this. That's what we're going to do today with this verse. So I want to draw in on this. In the first part of this verse, it's not only that he creates a blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon, but it's fit for its work. This is not some cheaply made, easily blunted or broken thing it is something that is is well-made and fit for the task for which it is sent. And this is the God who loves us and desires mercy and all these other things that we, that we hear about. So how did this work? First of all, another passage that when we think about is kind of a little strange. Again, this is a, a question I had that kind of occurred to me a couple of years ago, actually, that I had never really thought about it before. And the question is sort of born out of looking at Genesis and at Revelation. So we know, according to Revelation, at some point, the kingdom of God is going to come fully on the earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be a paradise, and there will be no more sin. And all of us who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior will you know, be made perfect and all these things. And so God is capable of creating this, this paradise where we'll be free from sin forever. And fully and actually free. But then we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it struck me that one way to keep Adam and Eve from sinning would have been to put that tree somewhere else. So if God is capable of creating a paradise that we see in Revelation, why didn't he just do it to begin with? And the only answer I can come up with right now that that satisfies me anyway 
is that this isn't about us, which seems like kind of potentially an obvious answer given how much, you know, the focus is on on God and on the kingdom and what we can do as Christians to bring more people into the kingdom, into the the feast of the lamb. And, you know, so it's, we're supposed to be kind of of the mindset that this isn't about us. This isn't about what we get out of earth or what we get out of our faith or anything like that. It is intended to be about God and about others, but still it's, it's that I just have the sneaking suspicion that there's more to this story than just our recognition that we need God. So that might end up being a full topic on its own later. Right now, I don't have any better answer than the only reason he would have put the tree there was because this isn't this isn't about us in some way, shape, or form. So we'll see at the end of all things if I'm right or not. But also notice that God planted the source of temptation. As we kind of just talked about, the easiest way he could have made for Adam and Eve to not sin, to not curse the rest of humanity and the rest of the earth would have been to not put the source of temptation in there. But there's a key point to this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, skipping ahead to verse 5, For God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So even though the source of temptation was there, it did not become an issue until Satan, the tempter, came along. So there is, or there was, in that tree, the weapon fit for its use, but it was not God who wielded it. And again, it wasn't, as far as the Genesis account says, they were never otherwise drawn to that tree. They believed God and obeyed him when he said, don't eat from this one tree until the tempter himself came along. And I also want to sort of call out, because I think this might be happening in our minds sometimes, is that depending on the weapon he's forming, we might be okay with it or we might not. And we look at Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, where it says, It is not because of your righteousness, he's speaking to the Israelites here as they're about to move into the promised land. He says, It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, the Canaanites' land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you. And so in this case, because the Israelites are moving into their promised land, into their sort of paradise-type land, we don't always mind when we're the weapon that was formed, that we are given the ability and the grace of God and the power of God to move into whatever space it is he's prepared for us, whether it was the promised land for the Israelites, whether it's the job, you know, presumably if there's a job that you want and there are other applicants, there may be any number of stories that these other applicants have why they want the job the most. But we're always so thankful when God gives us the job, when he blesses us because of our prayer and because we really, really need it. And it would be so awesome if we got it. Not thinking about the number of other people we are sort of driving out by filling that position. I don't mean to make you feel guilty about like if God has blessed you with a job, that's awesome. (laughs) I'm very happy for you. And don't feel guilty about that. But just think about the fact that whether you are a malicious weapon or a violent weapon or not, in this case, the other person that did not get the job, like I said, presumably they needed it just as much as you did. Maybe they wanted it just as much as you did, were as qualified as you were, but for whatever reason, 
you were the one that picked and now they're still out looking for a job, potentially praying to God for a job. And in that sense, they may feel as though there's a weapon formed against them that they can't seem to get this job that they wanted. And you, in this case, were the weapon. <laughs> Again, not to feel bad about it, but just consider both sides here. Because when we, we can skip ahead in the Bible, which we'll hurriedly do, <laughs> uh, in Jeremiah 27, verses 6 and 8, God says, Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. Verse 8 says, If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with a sword, famine, and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. Now, suddenly, we're uncomfortable because God is using a evil king and an evil nation to do damage to his chosen people. And this is when it's easier for us to see and to try to say, well, no, that's not actually God doing that because, you know, this is something coming against his chosen people. So it has to be from Satan. But as we just saw on the flip side, he can use even good Christian people that, you know, from the other side may feel like a weapon formed against them, even though it all comes from God. So how, again, we're looking at ways to try to understand how it could be that God could form a weapon fit for its use when he's supposed to be kind and generous and blessing us and all these sorts of things. And we can wonder, like, okay, does evil come from God then? And there's some Old Testament verses. We're going to keep looking through some of these that seem to say this. And then by the end, we're going to, we'll see kind of what's happening here. In 1 Samuel 19.9, this might be another verse that people who don't don't want to believe in the Bible at all, who say it's contradictory. There might be just people who read it innocently enough and come across these verses and be like, what on earth is going on here? 19 verse 9, 1 Samuel, but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. As a musical instrument, not someone who lies. We also can look at 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 22. Micaiah, who is a prophet, Micaiah continued, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. I'll say, well, wait a second. How's an evil spirit coming from the Lord? We didn't know the Lord had evil spirits, that God had evil spirits at his beck and call to send to people. Isn't it supposed to be coming from Satan? Well, here's one story really quick, again, to sort of try to understand how this verse might work. It comes from the book of Job. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 12 says this. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So it's not that God sent out 
Satan to do this specifically, but that Satan had come into God's presence, asked permission to to this thing, and then left God's presence. So you could, again, frame that in the sentence, an evil spirit came from God, meaning it came from, from his presence after gaining permission to do the thing that it wished to do. So here again, we have this example that God himself is not the one doing it, but he plans and purposes wrath to come on people. Again, this was this is where it was more of an Old Testament thing. The coming of Jesus changed that paradigm a little bit so that now wrath is saved for the end of the world. But again, it is the same God in both Testaments just operating toward us slightly differently because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. But there is plenty of evidence in the Old Testament that God creates and controls weapons to come against his chosen people, even against us. It's not always against people who, because of their sins, God has intended destruction like it was Ahab, and against even bringing the king of Babylon against the Israelites. It was because they had rejected God for so long and so many times, but even sometimes against people who follow him closely, as we saw in the passage from Job. In the New Testament, we see it still sort of happening. So let's take a look at what happens here. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And what are trials except weapons of the enemy come to attack us? We also know that God himself tests our faith, but we should consider it pure joy when it happens. Now we also need to continue after verse 3 down to verses 13 and 14. That when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Temptations come from the devil, and we permit him by living by or giving into our own already existing desires, coming from our sinful nature in the flesh that will not be redeemed until the end of the world. But God is still in control. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The difference that we need to make, our part in it, is we have to look for that way out. God has promised to provide it, and he has given us the grace to stand up under any temptation he sends that he will not send temptation that we cannot bear. And this is one of those passages where, you know, people began to say, God won't give you anything that you can't handle. And people rejected that and said, no, he does give you things you can't handle. Either they would split the hair and say, well, you can't handle it yourself, but only with God. It's like, well, as long as you have God inside of you, then you can still handle it. So that doesn't really make a difference. Or, They would say, well, that's not what the verse says. It says he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I asked the question, well, when we say I can't handle this, what do we mean? What is it? What is going to happen as a result of our not handling it? The only real result is some sort of sin. It's rejecting God's plan. It's it's either relying on our own wisdom or trying to take things into our own hands or not standing up during the trial and just giving up either on our faith in that moment or whatever it is, but that's a sin and that's that's the result of temptation. So it's to me, it's the same thing because the, te- the temptation is what, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit, but it's like 
whatever it means to you that you cannot handle this thing with God's power in you, a temptation has to be in place for you to not handle the thing that you're trying to get through. Does that make sense? I'm hoping that makes sense. (laughs) It's one of the cases where sometimes the one-sided conversation doesn't help us well. So I, I believe in essence, there's nothing that you can't handle with God's power, whatever it is. It doesn't feel like it in the moment. I've had a couple things that were not like massive, you know, trauma or anything, but certainly things where I was at the very end of what I felt like I could do. And it was just a matter of like, just live and don't do anything. <laughs> like time will pass. Again, you know, this that, there's, you know, I, I understand that things can go on, that it's not just a matter of waiting through them until they stop. That there's perhaps actions you need to take or prayers you need to make or whatever it is or things you need to do in order to move through them. It's not as simple as just sitting there and waiting for it to end because it may not end on its own. I get that. But again, the temptation is to either give up or give in or to run away, whatever running away means, temporarily or permanently, whatever it is. The inability to handle a situation or series of situations always comes down to, I can't handle this and I am tempted to do something that is not God-honoring or recognizing the lordship that God has or that Christ has, that he's called me to live through this situation in a way that will please him. It always comes down to a temptation. And if you cannot be tempted beyond what you can bear, but there is a way out, then there is always a way to handle whatever it is. We've got to look for it. I can't say necessarily what that means for you. It may take therapy. It may take you know, a lot of Bible reading. It may take going to church a lot, you know, whatever it is. Like We are each responsible to figure out what the way out is. Search for it as if your life depends on it because it probably does. Find that way out. Get out away from the temptation or away from whatever it is, grow in your faith, grow in the fruits of the spirit and in the, you know, and in God's grace. And that's, that's it. That's what we've got to do. As always, I hope this has been helpful. I hope it's been encouraging and not just depressing. There's enough things going on in the world to kind of take away our joy. Next week is going to be another interesting, tricky verse. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, and whether we are free from the law or not. It's going to be a, a good episode. It might be another kind of short one, but I think very, very good. So look forward to that. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to ko-fi, that's ko-fi.com slash Daniel Didek. There's also a link in the show notes where you can go and make a donation. Everything we receive there will go straight back into the podcast, either funding the subscription to the server where the episodes will be stored live forever, or in upgrading equipment. One of the things we want to do eventually is move into an actual soundproof studio, so you'll be able to help by donating through that Ko-Fi page. If you want to support me more generally, you can buy my books. Links are available on my website, danieldynek.com. And as always, non-financial ways to support are to spread the word about this podcast to your friends and followers. If you've read my books, you can leave reviews and, of course, subscribing to the podcast and listening to each episode sure encourages me. And thank you. Until then, keep the faith and keep it fresh. 